few things have happened since we last updated you on the case of the deceased hiker known as Mostly Harmless. In July of this year, about two years after the man was found dead in his tent in Big Cypress National Preserve, we released a podcast episode featuring the contents of his notebooks, hoping to reinvigorate interest in the case. And shortly after that, our agency made an exciting announcement regarding DNA testing. In this episode of the podcast, we'll dive into the details, answering some of the most commonly asked questions regarding forensic genealogy and how it could be the key to closing this case. Most people think DNA testing is DNA testing, and they really don't realize the vastness of what's really out there. You are listening to Sworn Statement, a podcast by the Collier County Sheriff's Office exploring local cases and public safety issues, all unfolding right here in Southwest Florida. I'm your host, Christine Gill. Soon after detectives began investigating this case in 2018, it became clear that Mostly Harmless would not be easily identified. He had no cell phone, no wallet, no identifying information on his person. His fingerprints didn't match with anyone in our databases, and no one in the National Missing Persons databases matched his biometrics. The comment we heard most often from the public was, why not use forensic genealogy? submit a sample to one of the commercial testing sites, and see what comes back. Now that we're at that step in the process, I figured I'd let the experts explain how we got here. Hi, I'm Holly Cherian. I work for the Crime Scene Bureau as a laboratory analyst. Uh, I take care of many aspects as far as the laboratory analysis piece is concerned. Uh, I do evidence processing, but in addition to that, I work with a particular team in our Crime Scene Bureau that looks at cold cases and unidentified cases, and we review laboratory results, do laboratory submissions, and see what steps are next for those cases. Um, In addition, I also do all the laboratory submissions for our current cases that are currently coming through for DNA analysis, um, and we send it to the respective laboratories that it needs to go to. Holly started working for the Collier County Sheriff's Office in 2019, well after this case began. But she's been responsible for the DNA testing in this case since. And when it comes to DNA testing, everything rides on the quality of the samples investigators have on hand. The victim was actually found in a closed tent, and he was fully clothed. There were no injuries on the body. There was no apparent animal activity, and the insect activity on his body was very minimal. That was really great because he was very well preserved. He had hiking gear that was actually really nice gear. He had food in the tent. He also had money in the tent. And so he was obviously out there on a hike or camping. The medical examiner conducted an autopsy, and they concluded that the victim didn't appear to be deceased more than a day or two. So that means there wasn't a lot of decomposition that had occurred either, so that was great. And they also noted that there were no tattoos or scars or medical devices that could help identify the victim. The body in and of itself, it was in great condition for DNA testing. You'll remember that our first break in the case came after we shared a composite sketch of the hiker on Facebook. That sketch proved to be extremely accurate thanks to the condition of the hiker's body. 
We knew his hair and eye color, the shape of his face, the condition of his teeth. In many unidentified persons' cases, investigators might only have a pile of bones to work with, or a body so badly decomposed that it can take months to come up with an approximate sketch. And in those situations, DNA testing is also compromised. So with forensic samples, like you said, most of the time it's not ideal situations. And a lot of the time, a lot of degradation is there. You'll have bacterial activity um, and decompositions already set in. So sometimes we only have the bones and sometimes we have some flesh left. So it causes uh, an issue because there's inhibitors that are present at that point for DNA testing, making it a less ideal situation, yielding poor results. With a decomposed sample or just bones, there are techniques that we utilize, which I'll go into talking about, um, that we're able to gain still some information. It's just different DNA techniques. In this case, we knew the DNA would be in good shape. The first step in our process, a step that has been in place for several years, is to extract the DNA and compare it to a couple law enforcement databases for known offenders and missing persons. So that's what we did. The body went to the medical examiner's office and they conduct an autopsy. That's typically what we do with all of our deceased cases. And because he was unidentified, what they'll do is they'll take a tissue sample, a bone sample, or a blood sample, and they'll send it to the University of North Texas Health Science Center where the university will then obtain a possible DNA profile for it. So they look at specifically two types of DNA profiles, and I'm going to go a little bit into that so you get a better idea. Typically, the first DNA profile that they're trying to obtain is an autosomal STR DNA profile. And what that is, is it identifies a uniqueness of the person. So that's what makes you different than your mom or your dad or your sister. So it gives you a unique profile that is to you, the autosomal STR DNA profile. The second type of profile typically we utilize with more degraded samples, and that's going to be your mitochondrial DNA profile. That's your maternal inheritance. So anybody on the maternal line shares the same mitochondrial DNA profile, but that's still an investigative lead for us. So even though it's not an ideal situation, it still gives us the information that we need to possibly find or identify a person. Once they obtain those profiles, they're going to upload those profiles into two different databases. Um, the first one is the CODIS database. Most people have heard about it. It is a DNA database, and what happens is they'll compare the unknown victim's DNA against any possible relatives that may have given a standard to a person that may have been reported missing. And so they'll give that, and they'll run it against that database. The second one is the NamUs database, which is most people have also heard about that. Um, and what that database does will make associations between a missing individual and an unidentified person. So they utilize both of these databases to hopefully identify this unknown person. There is a convicted offenders database. That index is a different database. We do search against that with an unknown profile too, and we have gotten hits in the past with that. Once the profiles are entered, it's a waiting game, and pretty much we're just seeing if there's going to be any associations or hits. The agency received the results of that search in March of this year. There were no hits for the hiker's DNA in CODIS or the missing person's database. That means his DNA was not in the system, and he didn't match with any close relatives. 
It's important to note here that the kind of DNA testing done at this stage won't link you to a distant relative, like a cousin. It's only good for very close relatives, such as parents or siblings. At this stage, Holly said it was time to look into other types of DNA testing. Over the past few years, our agency has been researching new DNA testing techniques, including forensic genealogy. Forensic genealogy uses DNA to link individuals through common relatives and ancestors, and it does this by comparing a sample to a large database of DNA profiles that individuals have submitted, agreeing to share them. Most people are familiar with the commercial testing sites that use this method, places like Ancestry.com and 23andMe. For anywhere from $100 to $400, you can spit into a test tube or ship a cheek swab off to one of these companies. A few weeks later, they send you a report showing what percentage Italian you are, whether you're predisposed to Alzheimer's, and where your ancestors came from. Some services will also allow you to upload your sample into their database to connect with other distant relatives. These days, people are using the databases to find their birth mothers after closed adoptions, and others are using it to trace their family's roots through time, in the process maybe discovering half-siblings they didn't know about. And a few years ago, law enforcement began using these databases too. In 2018, detectives in Southern California arrested the Golden State Killer, a man who raped dozens of women and murdered 13 people during an 11-year span beginning in the 1970s. The case had been cold for years when detectives used DNA from one of the crime scenes to locate one of the suspect's close relatives through a public DNA database called GEDmatch. At the time, this was both cutting-edge and extremely controversial. That's because GEDmatch never made it clear to people who were uploading their DNA to that database that the information might be accessed by law enforcement. The fallout prompted GEDmatch to implement an opt-in function. Now, when you get your DNA results from one of the commercial testing sites and decide to upload it to GEDmatch to compare against a larger sample of the public, that's when you can check a box to say whether you consent to allowing law enforcement to see your information. Which brings us to today. Now that GEDmatch has a better system in place, this kind of testing has moved ahead, and other law enforcement agencies are beginning to use it. But the testing required for forensic genealogy is much different than the methods currently used for law enforcement databases such as CODIS. Here's Holly Cherian again. Well, law enforcement has specific genealogy websites that we can upload to, and GEDmatch or FamilyTree.com are websites that we are allowed to use for investigative lead purposes. So the type of science that they're utilizing in genealogy testing is called SNPs testing. And the full form of that is single nucleotide polymorphism testing. And this technique gives us two major um, pieces of information. The first one is familial relations. And so what that is is we can enter a SNPs DNA profile from an unknown individual and then we can build a family tree off of it. So based on how much shared DNA a person has with another family member is how we build out the family tree. The second piece of information that we're able to obtain is phenotyping. So what phenotyping, an example would be, would be the color of your hair or the color of your eyes. So if we have bones or remains that we couldn't identify even what the individual looked like, this is great information to possibly say, hey, we're looking for a person who has blue eyes and, or, or brown hair or they have freckles, you know. 
So that's great pieces of information. In this case, we knew what our victim looked like, um, but again, these are great testing techniques that gives us great investigative leads. I should mention here that this kind of DNA testing also requires original samples from the individual or crime scene. In other words, the University of North Texas can't just hand over the results of their testing for this genealogy test. Scientists have to start from scratch, which means more time and more money. Our crime scene lab was getting ready to ship more of the hiker samples off to another Florida lab this spring for genealogy testing when one of our detectives got a call. The call was from scientists at a new Texas laboratory called Authorum. They had heard about the hiker case, and after reading the details, thought it might make a good candidate for a new kind of testing that they're using. So Authorum contacted Detective Herm, um, who is currently the detective working on this case, and he put us in contact. And what Authorum did was propose a newer DNA testing technique used in genealogy itself. It's called whole genome sequencing. And um, on top of that, which was really a plus due to the popularity of this case, Authorum believed they were going to be able to obtain funding for this case, for the analysis of it, so CCSO wouldn't be charged. So we really had nothing to lose. Our detectives agreed to the arrangement, and in July, we announced that Authorum would be helping with the case. So currently, like I said, the labs are using SNPs testing, which for genealogy in SNPs, it does require a larger amount of DNA and a higher quality of DNA, which is fantastic when you're pretty much spitting into a tube or swabbing to send to a sample for your own genealogy testing. But unfortunately, with forensic cases, as we had mentioned before, they're less than ideal samples. So typically, we're dealing with degradation and contamination with bacterial DNA. So with this process, with whole genome sequencing, the technique that Authorum is um, proposing, it requires a sample size that is less, and the results are, that are provided are much cleaner. So it yields a better result, providing us a lot more information. Michael Vogan is the case manager at Authram. It's his job to find cases that the lab can help with and to make contact with agencies they can work with. We were sent various stories on this particular case several times. I think I had mentioned eight to ten contacts with the public regarding this particular case, asking if we could help, keeping an eye on it. So we slowly got in touch with law enforcement, had those conversations, and then went from there. Tons of people are interested in Mostly Harmless. Since the hiker was found two years ago, other hikers have shared dozens of photos of him online and with investigators, and thousands of people have shared his story, forming Facebook groups dedicated to the case, maintaining threads on sites like Reddit and WebSleuths, and mapping his hike and hashing out theories about his demise. So it's no surprise, really, that it only took a few days for Authorum to crowdfund the $5,000 necessary to cover this testing. The really interesting thing about this case for me personally is the amount of people who met this gentleman along his way while he was traveling. You know, pictures were taken, interactions were had, different names were used, but for the most part, people had very pleasant interactions with him. And I think that resonated with people that there's a deeper story here. What that is, we don't know right now. Um, with a lot of cases that we work, particularly with unidentified remains, the remains have no backstory, right? It's just a gentleman, for example, on the beach, and nobody knows who he is or where he came from. There's really no story to grab a hold of and even start investigating. So you hear a ton of stories like that, 
So when you hear a story like this, uh, where he's unidentified, but there's so much interaction leading up to his death, that really resonated with me and with others. As we record this episode, that's where the process stands. The money has been raised, and the sample has been sent to Othram's lab in Woodlands, Texas, just north of Houston. Now it's time for the lab to get to work. Dr. David Middleman is Othram's founder. He started the lab in 2018 when he saw a need to help local law enforcement with cold cases. We wanted to apply these techniques towards an area that we thought was really high impact, but at the same time underserved. With these cold cases, there's really nothing else that can be done. The leads have been worked to exhaustion, and there might be DNA evidence, but it's failed to produce a hit in CODIS, and these cases go dormant. So being able to salvage some of these cases by applying the more advanced DNA techniques to learn something that might push uh, the case forward is very high impact. Already, Othram's testing is working. This year, they solved a missing persons case out of Charleston, Missouri, by sequencing DNA from burned human remains discovered more than 40 years ago. Decades later, the family could put their son to rest. We've performed DNA testing on lots of difficult genetic evidence. Some of it is over 100 years old. Some might be 40 to 50 years old. And some of this evidence might be only a few years old, but it's somehow been compromised or, or, or damaged in a way that makes it very challenging to test. If you look at the rules, the, the insert for, for taking consumer DNA tests, they have guidelines like not to smoke or eat or drink 30 minutes before uh, taking uh, the sample collection. Um, and these are all rules um, that they have because you need a real pristine environment um, to do this kind of testing. You can imagine that if any of those things can have an impact on how a test turns out, um, you know, imagine what happens when you have small fragments of a crime scene or of remains that might have been found in the woods or, uh, or something that was uh, uncovered at the bottom of a lake, something left behind from a cigarette stub. These are all non-optimal pieces of DNA evidence. And even if they're not decades old, they probably haven't been treated well and they're not really suited for the kind of testing that other labs can provide. When Dr. Middleman started the lab, he was intent on helping to preserve evidence in these cold cases. A lot of the current methods for DNA testing require a large evidence sample, but it's possible that you could use up your original evidence and still not get any conclusive results after testing. The new method uses a smaller sample and has better odds when coupled with genealogy. Othram also digitizes the DNA sequence to preserve it in perpetuity. DNA can degrade or become damaged for a variety of reasons. Sometimes evidence or remains have been uh, heated. Sometimes they've been treated with chemicals. Uh, Sometimes the evidence is just really old, and over time, um, as DNA ages, um, it it just degrades. And, And when I say degrade, what I mean is that large pieces of DNA get progressively broken down into smaller and smaller pieces. And sometimes the pieces get so small, they're no longer suitable for testing, the kind of STR testing that you would use maybe for CODIS. And, um, and so in that sense, DNA doesn't last forever and that you can't use it for all testing indefinitely. Once you consume the evidence, you don't get it back. 
And uh, if you don't get the answers you were looking for, that's a worst case scenario. When the, when the evidence is gone, uh, the case doesn't proceed any further. So anything you can do to reduce the consumption of evidence and of course to reduce uh, the consumption of budget to test the evidence, I think is a, is a key concern. Not only does Authorm use a new test for forensic genealogy, they're also the first lab dedicated to working specifically with law enforcement. They also run their own DNA database called DNA Solves. When you get results of your 23andMe testing back, for example, you can upload some of that information to DNA Solves to help solve crimes. DNA Solves is different than GEDmatch and the commercial testing companies. Right now, you can only upload your DNA to the database. In other words, you have to first get tested by another commercial company before contributing to DNA Solves. But participants are willing to work with DNA Solves because they want to help law enforcement crack these cold cases. So unlike GEDmatch, which gives you options to opt into that feature as you hunt for long-lost relatives, DNA Solves isn't going to help you find those relatives. It's just focused on helping law enforcement. Dr. Middleman says DNA Solves is definitely one of the smaller databases at the moment, but it's also growing. And the goal, he said, isn't necessarily to compete with other databases, but mostly to contribute to the bigger picture of providing as much information as possible to help solve cold cases. Dr. Middleman says it takes about 12 weeks from the time the lab receives the sample to come up with a full DNA sequence. In this case, the hiker's remains are in great shape for DNA testing, so chances are good that we'll get a full genome sequence in the standard time frame. After the 12 weeks are over, Authorm will begin its genealogy research on the case, and the timeline for family tree research runs the gamut. In the past, Authorm has solved cases in a matter of hours, but on the flip side, it can also take much longer. Case in point, investigators looking for the Golden State Killer first determined common ancestors dating back to the 1800s. From there, they had to draw out more than 25 family trees and sort through about a thousand relatives, all linked to the killer through DNA. It took months for detectives to then rule out each of these individuals by looking at their age, sex, and location at the time of the crimes. Even then, it wasn't considered case closed until they were able to compare Joseph James D'Angelo's DNA to that found at the crime scene. Here's the upside. Once Authorm sequences the hiker's DNA, it will stay on file in digital form, perfectly preserved until he can be identified. Dr. Middleman is confident that in this case, it's just a matter of time before that happens. Once you get a good profile, the nice thing is that your evidence is now digitized, it's there forever, and your case doesn't go cold. It's just a matter of time before you get the right matches to that profile in a database. If you are listening to this podcast the week that it dropped, scientists are actively working on this case in Texas. Mostly Harmless will hopefully be identified soon. And in the meantime, you should know that the Collier County Sheriff's Office is also actively working other unidentified persons cases. Cases like the one from 1974, where an unknown man died in a house fire at an abandoned home in Immokalee or the man in 2002 who drowned in the Gulf of Mexico. And we've been working with um, DNA Labs International, which is a lab here in Florida, uh, with a couple of our cases. And one in specific uh, is a 1982 case. And it was an unidentified victim. We know 
it's a female. It was a mutilated torso, so all of the limbs were missing and the head. And um, that was discovered, and we currently are actually submitting a femur from that torso uh, that will hopefully, DLI will be able to get a DNA profile, and we'll be able to identify her if um, the DNA profile isn't ideal, then we'll move on with genealogy testing, just like we have for Mostly Harmless. Um, another two cases that we actually just recently got um, some DNA on was uh, some teeth that we had submitted for a 1976 case and a 1981 case for unidentified individuals. And we have obtained autosomal STR profiles on them, and now we have uploaded them into CODIS, and now we're waiting on those as well. So hopefully we'll get a hit back, but if not, we'll move on to the genealogy piece on this. We do have a dedicated team in the Crime Scene Bureau that has been evaluating all of these unidentified cases and cold cases um, and reviewing lab results that we've already gotten and next steps. A few months ago, actually, our Crime Scene Bureau and Major Crimes Bureau met with the Medical Examiner's Office, and we've been partnering with them to collectively determine what evidence do we have there at the Medical Examiner's Office or here within our Property and Evidence section and then determining which samples would be great to go ahead and send on for genealogy testing or any other testing that we need to go ahead and um, continue. Just to know that I think it's a really neat piece. A lot of people don't realize that cold cases are actively being worked on a daily basis within our Crime Scene Bureau, which I think is amazing. It's not forgotten. We are actually actively working these cases, and we're collaborating with other agencies and offices, such as the medical examiner's office, to actually, you know, get or resolve these things. I really wanted to take this opportunity to thank you guys uh, for letting us share about uh, what we're doing at um, CCSO Crime Scene Bureau and how we're resolving cases. I think that it's just really neat to be able to share the technology piece um, that we're we're researching and we're actually continuing to utilize in these cases. Regardless, I think if it's a burglary or a shooting or a sexual assault or unidentified remains or a homicide, we're actively working these cases and we're committed to trying to um, learn new methods and obviously bring peace and justice to our victims and their family members. Sworn Statement is a podcast by the Collier County Sheriff's Office under the direction of Sheriff Kevin Rambosk. It is produced, written, and recorded by me, your host, Christine Gill. Listen on SoundCloud and wherever you find podcasts.